This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by Cinco de Mayo, Franklin. It's that annual event where we have a lot of good food and good beverage every May 5th. What are you going to be doing for Cinco de Mayo? Oh, it's, it's a good question. You know, one of the food groups, I think I've mentioned it before, chicken nuggies, mac and cheese, and then honey mustard salt. These are the three primary food groups in this, this household these days. But tacos are a close fourth food group. So we will be having a little uh, taco fiesta here. And my wife's favorite spot is Chewy's. She loves some Chewy's. So I, uh, I suspect that she will win that argument if she wins most arguments, and we will end up with Chewy's and Cinco de Mayo. Well, I, my, my first three favorite things on Cinco de Mayo are margaritas on the rocks, and then margaritas, and then margaritas. And the rest of it is, is um, unimportant at that point. No, but I, I love Cinco de Mayo. It's a great holiday. One of our good friends at the National Restaurant Association, Franklin, Mr. Brendan Flanagan, it's his birthday. Can you imagine having a birthday on Cinco de Mayo? That would be a great birthday. <laughs> yes, it is. Does he uh, does he eat a uh, a taco for every year? Is that his uh, his tradition? The, the the Flanagan challenge? I don't know. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's something we should bring up. But uh, on that happy note, on Cinco de Mayo, let's do the show. May I help you? We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution, and we will make America great again. From the home office of Aligned Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the country is slowly reopening, but a patchwork of state and local guidelines is making it rough going for operators. We'll discuss that and additional challenges around rehiring, liability, and delivery. And the 1st of May brings us May Day, a traditional day of action for labor groups. We'll discuss why the pandemic may make this year's edition look and feel a little different. And the politics of COVID-19 continue to amaze. This week, the CDC issued strong guidelines calling for both business owners and consumers to utilize single-use plastics, effectively reversing a decade of gains by the environmental community. We'll take a look at that development. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with the legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Aligned Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, the flag is up. It is time to reopen. We have states uh, that have started the process, more jumping in every day. But then on the flip side, we have localities that are kind of on their own pace. And there's in every given state, there's kind of no one size fits all. And it's kind of been chaotic. What's going on out there? Yeah, I've been a little surprised by the lack of consistency across the country and state by state in terms of the requirements on employers. And I think going back maybe two weeks, we were hoping that the federal guidelines were going to come out and that was going to give a lot of tight structure to the states. And obviously there would be some differences, particularly at the local level, you know, recognizing some local dynamics. I mean, you could see a scenario where urban areas and rural areas were treating things differently, but it's crazy. I mean, it's each state is totally different. There is not much of a template. And I will say that the restaurant retail community has been calling for that and working with the feds and the governors, but we still lack a lot of consistency. So, you know, I, I would group these states into kind of three categories, ones that are open now, ones that are getting ready to open, like as in next week. And then one that just we don't have any sort of idea when they're going to reopen at this point. And so maybe it makes sense to kind of go through some of those and, and talk a little bit about them. And then uh, we can move on to some of the other issues we're tackling, Joe. Yeah, I just I, I think and you pointed out, I think, earlier in the week that um, the other what's the other Dr. Franklin, not Anthony Fauci, uh, that was on Meet the Press, Dr. Burks. She basically said, look, we have federal guidelines, you know, blah, 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 and states do, but it's going to be localities are going to run this show. And as a matter of fact, I had a, uh, a fairly funny slash angry uh, email late last week from a, from a prominent CEO that was lamenting that there was a county in Tennessee making us get permits to open the dining room. And so, I mean, it's just chaotic from a identification and compliance standard. But I think the lesson here is that what the state says is great. But where the concentration of restaurants are, are in more populated urban, you know, or suburban areas. And it's going to be those mayors and county executives and county chairmen that are going to make a lot of these calls. So it's going to be a patchwork, to your point, for quite a long time. 
So real quick, I'll just list off the, the grouping of the states that are open and then the, the ones that will be open soon. And then w- w- let's jump off of that patchwork to liability because that patchwork, I think, ups the liability for employers. But just kind of going through real quick, states that are open, and a lot of these were expected, and we talked about them last week, Alaska, Georgia, Iowa, Minnesota, Mississippi, Montana, Oklahoma, South Carolina, Tennessee. Those were all the first ones that were expected to open, and uh, they're all been they're different requirements in each state, as we said, how much capacity you can have in the restaurant, um, different kind of requirements in terms of sanitation, face, all this stuff is different. And you really have to dig in state by state. It may be different at the local level. The next wave of states, really, we're talking about into this week and really next week. A lot of them are kind of a May 4th start time, open up time. Alabama, which actually may be May 1, uh, we all know that's when the stay-at-home order expires. And that's a little bit of an outlier. It's worth mentioning for our audience. In that state, usually in phase one, restaurants reopen, dining areas reopen at reduced capacity with, you know, particular requirements. Alabama is one of the states where restaurants are not included in the phase one, but retail locations are at 50% capacity. So that, that one's worth flagging. Arkansas, Colorado, Florida, Idaho, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Maine, Missouri, Nebraska, North Dakota, Ohio, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Texas, Utah, Vermont, Wisconsin, Wyoming. So after you kind of get in the next week, we're talking about, I didn't count those up, but it sure seems like you're getting close to a majority of U.S. states that are going to be reopened in some way, shape, or form. And they're all going to have different requirements. And many of them are going to allow local governments to set up their own requirements, which may differ from the state requires, may differ from the federal requirements, which is going to create somewhat of a nightmare for national brands that are figuring out how to have their managers on the ground comply with local, state, and federal requirements and protect themselves from liability from lawsuits. And so I think that's one of these next big conversations. We talked about it last week. It's escalating this week, and I think that's going to be a big conversation in the coming weeks. Frank, on one state we've been watching fairly closely uh, is Ohio, and Governor DeWine there has gotten a lot of good press for how he has tried to really thread the needle on balancing the need for protection of public health with the need for reopening the economy and, and, and starting that. And so it's been interesting, Ohio, he's had a call every afternoon uh, with the big city mayors in Ohio so they can kind of all be on the same page. So it'll be interesting to watch Ohio as kind of a beta test as to how the pace and progress and consistency of their reopening process Franklin, so let's pivot a little bit as we reopen. One of the things we need to reopen, in addition to customers feeling comfortable about getting out there, is employees. And we have employees all over the country that have filed unemployment, on unemployment rolls, have been furloughed, laid off, you name it. What's that rehiring environment look like right now across the country? Well, we've been talking about it for a couple of weeks. I don't think there is any rehiring. There's a calling existing workers back to back to work, which I guess technically is rehiring. But so that calling back workers, the challenge is going to be for a number of entry-level employers is they're making probably around the same amount or maybe even more at home and unemployment at least through the end of June. And so we've been talking about this for two months, right? But it's starting to get coverage in the in the national press. And really, Iowa and Texas started the ball rolling at the beginning of the week this week. They made announcements that if your employer calls you back to work, you're ineligible to receive unemployment benefits. They made it very clear and communicated that out. And that kind of set off the press coverage. We now have the national media regularly covering this story. So employers are going to have to make a decision you know, are they going to recall their workers? When they recall their, those workers, does that make them ineligible for unemployment benefits? It depends on state law. And there's two places you need to look for in state law. One would be state labor law, obviously. But in some states, the emergency orders can short circuit that labor law. So in Colorado, for instance, the emergency orders kind of override the labor law in the state. And basically, if an employee feels that it's unsafe to return to work, they don't have to. And so they would still be eligible for state unemployment benefits. 
The other thing is the way that unemployment law is kind of set up, labor law at least, is it's kind of like the tie goes to the employee. So the assumption is in many states that there's not a high burden on the employee. So in a lot of states, the employee just says, look, it's not safe to go to work. I don't feel comfortable. I have an underlying condition, a pre-existing condition. There's no mask. There's no hands. Then they're going to be able to stay on unemployment. Obviously, that means the employer is going to be short worker or workers. And also in the back end, it, you know, the employer gets dinged potentially in terms of uh, increases in costs related to unemployment taxes. So this is a scenario that we've been talking about for some time. The question was going to be, is there an awareness among workers of this issue that they can make more sitting at home? Number one. Number two, are workers going to feel unsafe that they don't want to go back into a work environment? And so forget it. I'm not coming into work. And so I think we're at a point now where both of those conditions in a lot of markets are are being met. Workers probably don't feel safe to go back in in the public and, and serve as a frontline worker in many cases. And also, there's a growing awareness because cable TV news is talking about it. It's all over social media. that They can maybe make more at home. So we've got a real reopening challenge here, at least until the end of June, when benefits drop back down to the lower level, to the kind of regular level, and it's going to be different in every state, but it's probably going to be below the take-home pay at that point of a lot of frontline workers. So restaurants want to reopen, retail locations want to reopen, but there are a number of hurdles, and this is a big one. But for every hurdle, there's an opportunity, and we've talked at length about how the post-COVID restaurant environment will look significantly different than the pre-COVID environment, and Dining rooms may be less a factor in the business model. The growing trend towards delivery and and to-go and off-premise was already happening. This just exponentially sped up that adoption. But we're also seeing, you know, governors kind of recognizing the importance of that delivery model to the bottom lines of, of restaurants and their ability just to survive. And one of those areas is in alcohol. We've seen a number of states, at least temporarily, allow for the delivery of of alcoholic beverage products. Talk to me about that space. Do you see the potential for that becoming more permanent? What does that mean in the micro and what does that mean in the macro in terms of the long-term area of kind of alcohol politics, if you will? Well, Texas decided this week that essentially they're going to keep the alcohol delivery, you know, emergency rule that they created on the books. And I expect, yeah, but other states are probably going to follow. I mean, the question is, you've loosened up and liberalized the, you know, very tight kind of three-tier system, at least in some states, very tight, particularly in the retail front, right? That's what we're talking about, the retail tier. And you've loosened up that retail tier and allow things you don't normally allow. And if you're saying you're doing that to prevent the spread of this virus, when do you sunset it? Do you sunset it next week or do you sunset it? three months from now or three years from now, when would you sunset it because you feel confident that even, you know, the vulnerable populations that will continue to stay home for the foreseeable future, they can go out and they don't need alcohol delivery anymore. When, when do you feel comfortable? And I don't think anyone has the right answer to that question. And so that means that probably a lot of these rules are going to be around for a while. And at some point, they're just going to probably transition to permanent because we've discovered that you know, the world isn't going to uh, collapse and cave in under its own weight if we allow for loosened uh, retailing, you know, loosened alcohol retailing in the, in the retail tier and in, you know, delivery or whatever else, right? And so I, I suspect that that is going to be something that changes a lot. And I think the industry is starting to key, key in on that opportunity and probably having conversations and governor's offices around the, uh, the country to that effect. So Frank, and as you mentioned, you know, we, a lot of governors easing restrictions on the delivery economy and allowing them to basically realize, acknowledging that full service delivery uh, is critical, not only to their, their business model, but their, their survival at this point in time. And the alcohol space is one of the most politically sensitive spaces uh, that, we, that we, you and I have worked in in our whole careers. But there really seems to be an opportunity 
with the kind of economic restructuring, for lack of a better term, that will happen after this crisis for those alcohol laws, as you say, to become much more permanent and kind of break that grip, if you will, of the three-tiered system, which we can argue all day long, but it's certainly is a, is a prohibition-era system that didn't have the modern online economy in mind, and it's, and it's inefficient and, and ineffective in today's world. How do you see the, the, the political debate with regard to alcohol delivery shaping up? At a minimum, I would hope you would think it's certainly not going to be the same old debate. You know, in the states that have it already right now and are utilizing it and the world's not ending, it's going to be tough to walk that back. And I do think that you will have a customer base. You know, one of the challenges for any conversation around this is getting customers or constituents to pipe up and say, hey, I want to have alcohol delivered. But now you've had folks, and in, in, in some cases it'll be a year or so, you know, it's not like it's going to end tomorrow that have gotten accustomed to this. And so now via these platforms and whatever else, you can activate those people to weigh in. And so, I, you know, I think the politics will will change somewhat around this. And it's not the only thing, right? It's just that alcohol is so highly regulated, as you said. You know, I, I think a lot more restaurants are going to be acting as kind of grocery stores in addition to selling food. And, you know, I think there's a lot of things that have changed and the way the way that restaurants operate, and some of that's going to hang around for a while. Yeah, I agree. I, again, going back to a, a theme that I've been, you know, pounding to death the last six, eight weeks is, you know, that, that may be another genie that that just will not go back in that bottle. And I think restaurants, retailers, you know, I, I think everyone realizes that the delivery economy is here to stay, and it's going to be really hard to pick and choose commodities uh, within that mix that can be that can be delivered. So I think it's a it's a it's something that full service restaurants, knowing how precarious economic positions their business models are in now, knowing that alcohol is probably the most profitable thing they have for full service restaurants and their profit margins, and knowing that delivery is vital to their existence, there's a confluence there where it's gonna have to go that way in a lot of places for a number of these restaurants to survive. So I think it's a very different kind of new world order post COVID for a lot of these alcohol issues. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. So Franklin, as we're um, taping this podcast, today, Friday, is the 1st of May, a new month, May Day, uh, my dad's birthday, by the way. But May Day is, and we've talked about this each of the last two May Days prior to this, how it's become a traditional day of kind of worker activism. And the last few years, you know, in my humble opinion, it's, it's kind of petered out a little bit. There have been other things that have uh, been higher on the agenda but this year may be a little different. It seems to be a, a confluence of different things happening out in that labor community slash activism space that the May Day events may provide a good platform or microphone for. Can you tell us what you think is going to happen with May Day? Yeah, we've been talking about it longer than two years. I think you mean in the podcast has been one of the third year of the podcast. Is that right? Third year. Uh, this has been around forever, the May Day. It's an International Workers' Day solidarity. It's always big in Seattle, you know, but oftentimes not not big elsewhere. We did see a spike in May Day activity around the first and I think second year of the Trump administration where a lot of immigration-related protests happened to be happening around the same time as May Day and kind of got combined into May Day events. And I would say that May Day is more popular in places like L.A., and others, you know, it is a, it a much more popular day of protest in Latin America as well as other parts of the world. And so it, those, those two things got lumped together. And actually, employers, retailers, operators um, were impacted in that there were some immigration-related strikes, day without immigrants activity around some of these May Days. But it was kind of a it was just coincidental that a, that a lot of these political issues at the national level were playing out the same week or weeks that May Day, and they, everyone kind of focused their activities on that day. That could be what happens today. You know, so there's been these ongoing strikes. We've been talking about them for weeks now, really driven by in the grocery sector and then the delivery sector, right, Instacart, Amazon, 
And now we have others kind of getting into the game, so to speak, Postmates notably. And now restaurants are getting pulled in. And so really the, the big the big mayday activity in the restaurant industry is organized by Chipotle workers and Postmate drivers focused on Chipotle, and that's the guac off. And so you could normally we, – we've stopped really tracking and worrying too much about mayday events and how they impact operators – but this May Day could be a little different. And really, it's just a culmination of weeks and weeks and weeks of labor organizing and strikes rather than May Day itself driving the activity. So be interesting at the uh, the end of the day today to see what the real impact to operators are. Are there widespread strikes or is it just located in a couple, couple little regions around the country? And will local media bite on it? In previous kind of May Day events over the last four or five years, the you know Fight for 15 crew and Restaurant Opportunity Center use it as an opportunity to focus on our industry. You know, right now this industry has a kind of a halo. We're essential workers. We're 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 feeding communities, and it'd be interesting to see where the local media kind of takes the bite if the tone and tenor of the conversation kind of gets anti-employer or anti-restaurant. But it's interesting. It isn't much about wages as it used to be, although wages will always be an issue. It's not about wages. It's about just personal protective gear and paid leave and some of these other other factors in, in the conversation. So it'd be really interesting to see what happens. My guess is that they will have a little blip here and there, hype it 10 times more than it ever deserves to be hyped. But it, it, again, it's it's pivoting away from wages and benefits to worker safety. So to be, it, it, like I say, it's it will be uh, interesting to see if, if this strategy pays off. I do see the conversation going that direction. And we've been talking about it here and talking with our clients for some time. You know, there's kind of a perfect storm that could crash together. If you look at Texas and Iowa drawing attention because employers are forcing their employees off the unemployment rolls by recalling them to work, they may not want to go back to work because they don't feel unsafe, but now they have to because they're losing their unemployment check. And then if they end up in some of those workplaces and there's not PPE available, that creates kind of a perfect storm for labor organizing, number one. And the press will absolutely key in on that. So we have a lot of elements in place where I, I think you're right. The narrative has been that restaurant workers, grocery workers, frontline workers are essential. You know, thank goodness for them. They're keeping America going. But I, I think the narrative is going to change. And Fight for 15 has been doing digital ads and obviously has been beating their drum for a while. Restaurant Opportunity Center has done a strike and walkouts and has been organizing around Caribou Coffee. We have organizing around Chipotle. All this stuff is bubbling up. And I do see a scenario where this narrative changes and and changes for the worse and employers start to look like the bad guy in this, that they're putting workers at risk. And, you know, unions coming in and saying, hey, I can get you a 15 cent raise that will be wiped out by the 75 cent an hour that's paying union dues. That That is not a very compelling pitch. But coming in and saying, hey, your employer is risking you and your loved one's lives by forcing you to work at whatever dollars an hour. That's a much more compelling pitch. And I expect labor organizers are going to continue to, to make that argument. And this dynamic is, is far from over. and It's going to continue to change in the coming months. So we've talked many, many times, had many, many segments on this podcast regarding kind of the war on waste, if you will, the war on packaging, single-use plastic, styrofoam. We've talked at length about the politics around it, consumer and political, and states cracking down. And we talked about New Jersey and California and Maryland. Franklin, one thing I don't hear about anymore is anybody bad-mouthing single-use plastics. What? Tell me, tell me how the COVID-19 epidemic has turned the political debate around single-use plastics literally upside down. It is amazing. I mean, the plastics industry was set to basically be the arch villain of 2020. You know, like that's the trajectory we are on. I wonder how many like magazine covers and articles and spreads and change.org petitions about plastics were floating around out there. And uh, yeah, to your point, COVID-19 has changed all that around. There is a celebration of single-use plastics now. And in fact, this week, the notable development this week is that the new CDC 
guidance that is out calls for restaurants using disposable menus and plates and utensils um, as part of the reopening. And I'm just going to read out of the guidance. Restaurants should consider throwaway menus, single-service condiments, disposable forks, knives, spoons, and dishes. And this is also, you know, sneeze guards at cash registers, avoid buffets, salad bars, drink stations. It was not that long ago that not only were all the items that I just read off public enemy number one, but we had a movement afoot to uh, essentially eliminate them, right, phase them out. They had to be 100% recyclable or compostable. Um, otherwise, we weren't going to allow them. And there were some municipalities, notably San Francisco, uh, but it, it certainly was spreading where there would be a mandate of reusable cutlery and reusable plates and dishes so that essentially to eliminate any single-use items in a restaurant, essentially they're going to mandate QSRs, which would have to totally change your business model, right, to accommodate that. That is obviously going by the wayside. I mean, the CDC would tell you that that's a terrible practice in this moment in time. And so, you know, we talk about alcohol delivery and we talk about some of these other consumer behaviors and, and the political ramifications that are going to take a while to change. Single-use plastics are back in vogue, at least, you know, for the near term. And it, it's hard to imagine that, uh, you know, not for at least some years where the focus is not going to be from banning these items. It's going to be from promoting their use. Franklin, can you imagine being, you know, part of an environmental group or activists sitting around their office when the CDC the most prestigious health epidemiological body we have in the country and potentially the world, calls for the use of single-use plastics, calls for disposable menus, calling for disposable plates as a public health imperative. What was going on around the conference room at enviro.org that day? At least three people's heads exploded, and it was a tough day. I think what they would probably say is like, look, we need to transition to compostable single-use items, right? Which is all well and good, but you know that that presents its own challenges. Compostable, first off, they're not widely available; they're much more expensive. You know that that creates a whole new. You're then essentially using food products like corn to make those and and removing corn from the the food supply chain, and you have to grow more acreage of corn. That has an environmental impact. So. You know, there's no good swap here, and there's no swap without cost, that's for certain. Yeah, but to to your point, Joe, it was probably a bad day, a bad yeah, day. And, I mean, and the truth is they had momentum on their side. I mean, they had a lot of momentum on their side, and this has certainly stunted that. Yeah, they were certainly crying into their soy soy lattes that day at uh, Enviro.org. But it, it is interesting, and, and it'll, it'll be a while before there's – any, I mean, they, you know, we talked again about the you know, life cycle of issues and we mentioned many times how, you know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of focus in this space and it, it went away in favor of other issues and came back strong in the last year, last year or two. Man, there, that's, a, that's a decade worth of progress for the environmental community out the door. And a decade worth of progress on this. And there's going to be no appetite for anyone to talk about this space uh, for the foreseeable future. To your point, to re-enter that conversation, it's going to have to be through the compostable lens. But still, if you're a, a person at the Plastics Institute or a plastics manufacturer, you're feeling better than you have in a long time. Yeah, this is probably the, the time to renew your calls for uh, you know a recycling market that works, right? And that's the conversation to have, is let's, let's get a recycling market that, that works. And uh, not demonize plastics because you're right. Their decade of progress has been tossed away like a straw in the beach, Joe. It's time for the legislative scorecard where we go around the country and update you on the latest legislative and regulatory developments. And Franklin, let's start with uh, all things COVID related at the top of the, at the top of the podcast. We talked at, at length about reopening and the challenges and potential schedules of reopening. But one thing we just kind of basically really just touched on, we want to go deeper on in the scorecard here, is the business liability conversation going on. What's going on with that? Yeah, we have some legislative battle lines being drawn, political battle lines being drawn. As we reported last week, the White House 
came out very strong in the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, kind of echoed the White House in saying that we need some safe harbors, we need some specific guidelines that employers can follow, and, you know, they'll be protected, they'll have a liability shield from, uh, uh, you know, the trial bar. I mean, this could be the next ADA lawsuit, right, where you could just have tons and tons of lawsuits over unsafe workplaces. So, Mitch McConnell this week said he's going to make that a top priority in the next legislative package. And uh, Nancy Pelosi looked at him and said, no, sir, you're not. And so we're going to have there, – there's a big fissure here between what the Democrats want in the next package and what the Republicans want in the next package. And liability protection or a shield is is part of that conversation. So we'll see how that shakes out. I would also link this to another development this week. And yet again, we talked about this last week or the week before. In Illinois, we had a workers' compensation commission that essentially expanded liability that would normally be associated with first responders to all essential workers, all workers in the state that had been deemed essential. And so a judge issued a temporary restraining order essentially knocking down that that rule, and the commission pulled back that rule in response to the courts. So that's a huge win for the business community, but that is just one little battle in a much broader you know, war, if you want to characterize it that way, where these liability conversations are going to continue to play out at the federal, state, and even local level because we're going to have differing standards on what is a safe workplace and what the requirements of employers are. So this is a, a, a new minefield that's really starting to open up, and it's one that employers are really going to have to start paying attention to. And Franklin, briefly, uh, with regard to the Paycheck Protection Program, it looks like, you know, both both uh, Republicans and Democrats are, are coalescing around a lot more oversight on the program and potential uh, threats of audits from the Trump administration. Do you want to elaborate? Yeah, I mean, while there's basically no or little bipartisan agreement on what the next relief package should look like, there's bipartisan agreement on the beatdown of companies, especially public, public companies that have been taking some of these funds from SBA. And so Treasury... Senator Marco Rubio, you, you know, Senator Marco Rubio is saying that they're going to publish a list of all the companies awarded loans. That is new information that's out there. Treasury Department is saying that they're going to audit all companies with more than $2 million in, in loan amounts. That is new. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on the Hill are both calling for increased oversight of the program. So the bottom line is, and we've been talking about it for some time now, but you need to be complying with the, the spirit of the law, not just the letter of the law here. There will be congressional inquiries. There will be oversight done by the agencies. And both Republicans and Democrats are kind of looking for scouts um, right now. So if you're doing things like pulling down PPP funds and then making acquisitions or making your payouts to executives, you know, you, you could find yourself in trouble very quickly. And Franklin, pivoting to uh, supply chain, we have seen a lot of activity in the supply chain this week with positive tests in a number of different industries and uh, the president ordering facilities to stay open. Can you elaborate on that as well? Yeah, and I mean, this has been well documented in the press. You know, the, the, there's been a number of chicken processing centers and uh, meatpacking facilities that have been shut down. I think it was the CEO of Tyson Chicken took out a one-page ad in one of the major dailies, you know, the Times or the Post, I don't remember, um, basically saying, like, the supply chain is broken. So over the past two weeks, this this conversation has been ramping up. The situation is that these meatpacking facilities or these chicken processing facilities are not well set up and designed for social distancing. It's, it's basically impossible is what the food processors are saying because you're elbow to elbow in the line and, you know, they essentially had to completely redo the, the entire process and business model to accommodate social distancing. That obviously has led to these incredible outbreaks in the facilities. And so we have had this dramatic action. And I don't, I don't know. I think you'd probably have to go back to World War II to find a historical precedent of this, but you have President Trump intervening and under the Defense Production Act and mandating that even though these are unsafe workplaces, that they have to reopen and they have to operate because it's in the national interest that the supply chain of you know, meat in particular doesn't collapse. And so 
if you're a union organizer, your eyes are popping out of your head because this is the most right kind of union organizing environment. You know, workers are afraid and essentially they're being mandated to go back to work where they're going to be cut, fired, and, you know, they're not eligible for unemployment. These are also obviously um, an associated economic ladder, typically, you know, depressed communities that are um, working in these facilities. So there's there's that angle and, and consideration in this as well. The bottom line is unless this resolves itself in the next week, which it's hard to see how it would, but unless they figure out how to make these workplaces really, really safe and, and everything gets back up and running, there's going to be an incredible amount of scrutiny on these food processing centers and essentially the supply chain of brands, right? So it's unlikely that Jimmy's Chicken Processing Center is going to be the focus of national advocates in the media. It's more likely that the end user the grocer or the restaurant brand is going to be the one that, you know, is characterizes this as part of their supply chain. And so that's that's a real concern and consideration over the longer term here, in addition to operational considerations, obviously. But on the public affairs front, um, it's going to be interesting to watch how this conversation evolves. And uh, hopefully this is all resolved sooner than later. And it's just a blip on the radar. But it, it's hard to see exactly how that happens. Well, to your point, if you're a union organizer, this is this is Christmas come early. And if the if labor community can't make inroads into these industries with this, uh, then they might as well just you know hang it up. I mean, this is this is kind of 150 years ago, Upton Sinclair and the, the the jungle, you know, and the meatpacking, and you know, this article today uh, in the Atlanta uh, Journal Constitution that hundreds of Georgia. Uh, poultry workers have tested positive for COVID. So this is this is going to be a really tenuous space here for the next uh, days and potentially weeks. And I've, we've already talked to a number of supply chain folks in various uh, companies throughout the industry that are very, very nervous about what, what may be coming down the road. So something everybody needs to pay you know, keen, keen attention to. Franklin, interesting you know, program being launched in California by the governor there. Uh, basically, the state wanting to partner with restaurant companies uh, to feed at-risk populations. Can you uh, tell us what's going on there? Sure. And it's being characterized as a first of its kind. I don't think that's true, but it's certainly a first of its kind on this scale for the entire state of California. And essentially, they're setting kind of fixed costs for meals, $16 for breakfast, 17 for lunch, 28 for dinner. And if you're a restaurant then you can go apply, you know, submit a RFQ or whatever to participate in this program. And, you know, you would have kind of this set number of meals that we purchased from your restaurant and then delivered to seniors across the state. If you're looking for, we talked about this some weeks ago, you know, these are the type of partnerships that restaurants should be seeking out. Gavin Newsom, restaurateur, right? And in his mind, I think, and I think he stated this is a way to help restaurants and help them get back up and running and get revenue and get people in in the kitchens and also help out a vulnerable population in the state. These are the type of partnerships we should be looking for around the country. And uh, I, I would like to see more and more of these in the, in the coming days and weeks. And it seems like the, the, the numerical standards they sent they set are pretty high. $16 for breakfast, 17 for lunch, and 28 for dinner. So, you know, again, it's, it's trying to do good and do well at the same time. He's trying to help restaurants. And he's trying to feed seniors. And when you think about those are, that's a fixed menu too, you know, those, that dollar amount really, really may make sense for a lot of, uh, a lot of restaurants. There's also a federal effort underway to expand the restaurant meals program within SNAP. And that's the SNAP Carry Act. It's basically been pushed by Democrats. Essentially, it'll allow for a lot more SNAP purchases to be made, um, at restaurants. So not exactly like what California is doing, but but a similar effort at the federal level that obviously is going to have to advance through Congress. But yet again, there's a lot of creative things that can be done at the state level that that mirror both these programs. So yet again, just just more things operators should have in mind to be looking for. Franklin, a little bit of minimum wage activity out there in, in America outside of the COVID uh, issues. Uh, Johnson County, Iowa, uh, is having a minimum wage discussion for for what. It, it's kind of symbolic, but uh, what's going on there? Johnson County, Iowa. Yeah, they're doing a recommended minimum wage standard. That's essentially what the county is passing. It is a uh, totally symbolic deal. This is a college town, you know, so it is what it is. 
1063 an hour is uh is what they're doing state wage remains at the uh, federal level 725 and then in uh <clears throat> the bay area city of san carlos california they've uh they've pumped the brakes a little bit they have joined a growing list of california municipalities that have been uh struck with uh reasonability you know like um they all these cities there's a ton of them and there's at least five or six that i can remember in the in the past couple months here or month and a half that um have delayed minimum wage increases and so they were going up to fifteen dollars an hour ahead of the state schedule and they're basically pushing that off now um the current wage there is twelve dollars an hour so i expect we'll probably continue to see these around the country a lot of minimum wages are pegged to go up july 1 and so you know we're probably going to see more cities and, and maybe even some states freeze or uh postpone automatic increases on or around july 1. Well, I think it's important also, you know, in the context of what we talked about last week with the Berkeley quote unquote study that there's absolutely no economic impact to raising, you know, significant raises in, in, in the minimum wage. You know, here are cities that, you know, can't get any bluer than blue than the Bay Area. And here's city after city saying, you know what, there is a connection between raising minimum wages and economic impact to businesses, and we have to weigh those things, And which is all really the industry has ever wanted to have the conversation. There's no free lunch on this stuff, and there's a, there's a blue block that thinks it's just a, it's a freebie, that there's no penalty or cost to be paid with, with, with these wage increases. And it's interesting how city after city, even the bluest jurisdictions are saying, hold on, there is a connection. Hope the industry can use that. I know this is only a, a one-off in city by city, but intellectually, I hope the industry can help use that to reposition the, the, the issue going forward in a post-COVID world. Uh, and speaking of issues that are changing as a result of COVID, Franklin, paid leave. We've seen a little bit of corporate activity uh, this week in the paid leave space, notably with Amazon. This is interesting, and I'm not sure that I was aware that this policy was in effect, but the, um, the company had in place an unlimited time off policy for workers during COVID-19. Essentially, you could just take time off and not paid time off, right? You could just you could take paid time off, paid sick leave or paid whatever if you had that accrued or the the company allowed for, but you also could just take unlimited time off, right? With essentially no reason. And they've essentially pulled that back now. And now it will only approve personal unpaid leave of absence for emergencies or basically circumstance related to COVID-19. There are some other paid leave, you know, the company's expanded paid leave recently for those that are uh, in self-quarantine and, and raised pay by $2 an hour. So they've done some other things as well. But um, they are rolling back uh, this policy, which is, quite frankly, pretty uh, expansive. So a little interesting development at Amazon. Now, Frank, it's just a, it's, it's interesting. We're going to, you know, as, as employers have beefed up policies during this COVID crisis, you know, each and every one in their own way is going to have to be very careful about how they kind of unwind those policies when we get, quote unquote, back to normal. So this is a watching corporate behavior. You know, companies ought to watch what other companies are doing and the pushback that they get from it, either by workers or elected officials or the media, whatever it may be. So this is an area to go just to navigate very, very carefully. Um, Franklin, switching to labor policy, you talked about uh, what was going on in Illinois with regard to workers' comp and the the onus of responsibility for workers that fall ill. What's going on in New York City? Some amazing things, Joe. I can't, I cannot believe how New York City has just become, I mean, this bastion of, it, it's crazy what comes out of that city council, what's under consideration at that city council these days. They really have established themselves kind of as the, the San Francisco of the East. On May 5th, so next week, next Tuesday, there'll be a, a package of bills up. And we've talked about these before, so I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time going through it. One is the just calls that was originally targeted QSR has been expanded to essential workers now, which is kind of good news, bad news for us. Now we're not on an island fighting this, but now it may have a more legitimate chance of actually going into effect because it's for essential workers. And that basically is, it puts a, a union essentially in the equation anytime any employer wants to fire someone. It's essentially a common clause in a collective bargaining agreement that would be codified in, in city law. Premium pay, that's a, kind of the second bill on the labor front, and that would go for businesses over 100 employees, 30 bucks 
for shifts lasting four hours or left, 60 bucks for shifts between four to eight hours, 75 bucks uh, for shifts exceeding eight hours. So that is for all essential workers. Wowzers. That is, uh, that is steep. And then both of these requirements would end when the, the state of emergency is lifted. And then the final one, and of course they have private right to action. The final one, the final two, excuse me, um, expansion of the earned sick leave policy there, which yet again, a lot of these cities have been moving to plug kind of the quote unquote loopholes in the federal law. New York City is the latest to, uh, take a stab at that. And then while we're at it, let's just go ahead and attack the independent contractor law a la AB5 in California and, uh, you know, try to expand liability for, uh, for all businesses in the city. Why not? So. Sorry to take in the uh, editorial uh, sarcastic tone here, but, uh, man, I mean, is really now the time to be just dropping all your wish list items on employers that are just limping along during this outbreak, and it's just kind of crazy. So no idea if any of this stuff's going to move forward. It's unclear where the speaker or the mayor are on these on these issues, and the speaker's probably more influential at this point than the mayor, but we're going to have to see. First reading next week, and then it will take some months probably for, well, during regular kind of session, and they could have some sort of emergency you know, to, to pass this real quick, but this would be debated for weeks, if not months. So we'll see if they kind of ex- expedite the timeline, but this is just first reading of these bills this next week. So there will be time to impact it. Last thing I'll say, Joe, there's a big coalition of businesses and the restaurant association has quarterbacked a lot of this, pulled a lot of folks together, but, you know, going from retailers to building trades to, you know, there's, 30 logos that are opposing this stuff outright. So the business community as, is as united as it ever is in New York City in their opposition to these bills. Well, two things, uh, and you, you touched on one of them. One was how kind of AWOL the mayor, Bill de Blasio, seems to be in all this. He poked his head up recently on some COVID stuff. But man, since his botched presidential run, he has just been a non-factor in that city. And he's kind of a non-factor in all these issues you, you, you just spoke to in terms of they're all being generated out of the council and in various areas. So that's a big departure from the first part of the de Blasio uh, tenure as mayor of New York. Second piece was how you encapsulated all what's going on in New York City under the guise of wowzers. That's uh, that's a new term for the Working Lunch podcast, but I think we need to hang on to that one because you were clearly exasperated by what's going on. So, uh, Franklin, lastly, in New York, New York City, no surprise, is playing a role in this as well. But we're, we saw a number of large metropolitan areas get involved in an ongoing conversation over the last two or three weeks about putting caps on delivery fees for these third-party providers. A lot of big cities on the list this week. Yeah, and New York City was, as you said, it was months ago, was kind of dipping into this matter. And as we've been talking about the delivery space, and we've been advocating that people need to pay much more attention to this because it's a growing slice of revenue and the guardrails really hadn't been defined and et cetera. We actually, three or four months ago, were throwing caution flags of really going into New York City and advocating for the city to intervene and cap delivery fees. While traditionally, historically, we said we need to get in this space and, and make sure that we have a seat at the table and how the, the rules look, you know, having a city council intervene and essentially dictate pricing is, is a kind of a dangerous precedent. That being said, you know, delivery went from 22% of revenue to all of a sudden 92% of revenue, you know, for some companies. And so in that environment, you know, kind of extraordinary measures probably need to be taken. In fact, there was a restaurateur in Boston that wrote an op-ed that pretty strident in that it, it said delivery companies are going to kill, you know, independent restaurants. You're going to put them out of business. And they were advocating for Boston, which is one of these cities, to, in fact, put a delivery fee cap in place. So, you know, the context has changed a little bit. And there's a lot of municipalities that are following that. There's early New York City conversations. New York City heard legislation, first reading of legislation this week to cap delivery fees. Boston, Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, Seattle, are all considering delivery caps between 5 and 15%. I think Chicago is the only one at 5%. But yeah, this is probably going to spread to other parts of the country. And 
my sense is that a lot of these mandates are not going to be temporary, you know, for this crisis period, COVID-19. They are going to be law of the land, law in the books, and um, they're going to change the whole kind of business models here around around delivery for the future. So important developments and an important issue to continue and follow. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, in context, I, these delivery platforms, the, the transition to a you know, delivery economy. You know, it's, it's funny that these new platforms come online. Uber went through this and Airbnb went through this. And now the, the food delivery platforms, they, were, they have a lot of brashness, bravado. They try to strong, strong arm traditional players. And over time, disgruntlement by either consumers or policymakers or opinion leaders, they kind of get kneecapped. And, and now Uber is playing defense, right? And now Airbnb is playing defense. And now these groups are, you know, the, the Postmates and DoorDashes are playing defense. So it's, it's just interesting to watch these progressions of a lot of brash and bravado at, at the beginning. And then, and then they get uh, brought back down to earth here by, by reality. So just interesting to watch. All right. Well, that's, uh, that's the last word. And uh, we'll have another scorecard for you next week. Well, another week, another pod, but uh, talking about reopening the country and reopening states, it looks like we may be, frankly, on the edge of reopening the campaign. It looks like uh, Trump and, and Biden together are going to kind of emerge from their bunkers and maybe get back to some semblance of a normal presidential campaign. Yeah, Joe, I think normal is a relative term. I don't think we're going to have anything like we've had in past cycles where candidates are touring battleground states and the press bus with 30 reporters is in tow and not going to have that. But President Trump does have events scheduled next week, really photo ops of him at different facilities. And yeah, as you mentioned, Joe Biden, there's discussion about him coming out of his underground bunker where he's been holding uh, podcasts and webinars and Zoom meetings. So it will be interesting to see. I do think that the, the past month has benefited Joe Biden. He's just basically not been existent <laughs> while the uh, president has uh, lost some credibility. So it'll be interesting to see there will be a, uh, a paradigm shift, at least in the short term, there will be a new dynamic in play. And we'll see if it benefits either Trump or Biden. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Biden's been the beneficiary over the, the past couple of weeks. So something for us to pay attention to and uh, opine about in future pods. And opine we will. All right. Well, hope everybody has a has a great week. And as always, stay home, stay safe. But go out to your neighborhood restaurant and patronize ones that are reopening. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.